Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hey, soulmates, halfway through the week. Happy hump day. Thank you. I almost thought it was Friday again. You know me. Don't do it. Because <laughs> then Thursday shows up and you're like, where'd you come from? I know, right? Welcome to Fox News Black Report. We're going to follow some stories for you today. The latest from the family of Shanquilla Robinson in their fight for justice and a major sports boycott is on the way. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm Nicordelide Corte, plus raising awareness surrounding issues facing black foster children and how NFL player R.K. Russell is working towards a more inclusive league. They're the stories impacting our people. We're bringing you our news, our views, and our voice. So let's get into our top conversation for today. Let's go to Fulton County, Georgia, where District Attorney Fannie Willis seeks to dismiss former President Trump's motion to remove her from the case and suppress grand jury evidence. She asks judge to reject his motion to remove her and suppress grand jury evidence. Willis argues. Georgia law doesn't support removal or blocking evidence. Trump's team requests a hearing. Local law enforcement prepares for possible Trump indictment. Willis plans charges announcement between July 11th and September 1st. Special grand jury's final report recommends indictments. Willis to decide whether to pursue and present case to grand jury. Courtney, this is, this they is, are grasping listen. for straws. They are doing everything they can to keep her from taking this sort mm -hmm. of action. Mm -hmm. um, not only were they trying to get her dismissed from the case, but Trump's team's also asked the Fulton County chief judge to remove the judge that ruled on this, McBurney try to remove him from the case mm -hmm. because he allegedly violated the rights of witnesses and investigators by giving improper legal guidance. Uh, you know, looks like a duck. Walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It, and and, and, and the fact that he is, is doing everything he can, his mm -hmm. team's doing everything they can to prevent this from happening, should tell the people of Georgia mm -hmm. and the people of this country a little something. You know, we had some political experts on uh, the show very early on, and they said, hey, this might be a slow groove, a slow move, but they were pretty sure that these indictments were going to go down. We have already seen New York. Georgia is bubbling. I feel like it's, it's, it's on the bubble. It's on its way. And from the folks, the experts that we've talked to, this thing is a thing and it's going to happen. Um, and as we can see here, uh, not much is going to be done or be able to be done by uh, Trump's folks to, to stop this train. It, it has been long coming for a while now. And uh, it, it's like daytime TV. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've never seen a Republican candidate for president, yep. a former president, and this kind of legal jeopardy mm -hmm. and so uh, we will definitely yeah, uh, keep and then you watching. lay a presidential bid on top of that it makes it even juicier yeah. it's gonna be interesting you're right mm -hmm. Republican state attorney general Daniel Cameron is projected to win Kentucky's GOP gubernatorial primary with the backing of former president Donald Trump Cameron emerged as the front-runner, aided by Trump's endorsement in a state that Trump won by double digits in 2020 Cameron gained national attention for his breakout speech at the 2020 Republican National Convention. In November's general election, he will face Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, who holds a strong 63% approval rating in the state. All right, now to Philly, where Cheryl Parker is projected to win Philadelphia's Democratic mayoral primary, halting progressive momentum. Former city council member Parker defeated tough rivals in a tight race. She now advances to the general election as the Democratic favorite in heavy Democratic Philadelphia. The race garnered significant spending and showcased the uh, enduring power of centrism. Parker's focus on crime and education resonated, proposing a extended school year and 
and a tougher public safety approach. Progressives wanted a different direction. Her victory sets the stage for a potential impact in 2024 as Pennsylvania becomes critical in national politics. This is good to see in the quarter line. Well, I mean, it depends on, you know, you know from which perch you're looking at this. Uh, she would be uh, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affections, 100th yeah, mayor. That's and, pretty significant. And she absolutely leaned into being a historic first, being a black woman, mm -hmm. a part of this wave of black folks winning mayor's races in major cities across the country. Uh, but what makes her candidacy a little controversial is her proposal for students to remain in school throughout the calendar year. That is a, mm -hmm. a major shift. Uh, and who knows, it could spark a bit more of a national movement to do the same. And then she also is a, a, a she's also uh, gone with this hard line public safety approach where, you know, she wants to promote a constitutional stop and frisk policy to deter crime. Now, we know what stop and frisk did in New York and other parts of the country and places around the world. And so you can see why it depends on what vantage point yeah. by which you're looking at her yeah. candidacy for mayor. She's putting a, a stunt, a bit of a stunt to that uh, progressive movement, as we mentioned. But it's interesting because here we have a candidate who looks like us, but you might not share the same views as she does. So it's going to be interesting to see how those voters in Philly, what they what they decide, but she is the heavy favorite. You know, and also it's very similar to Daniel Cameron in Kentucky, mm -hmm. who, you know, has secured the GOP nomination for governor. You know, uh, there are a lot of people that say all skin folk ain't kin folk. Mm -mm. Just saying. Well, Brandon Johnson becomes Chicago's 57th mayor after taking the oath of office at Credit Union One Arena. In his inaugural speech, he calls for unity and pledges to prioritize public safety. Take a look. I know we need revenue. We have a structural deficit. And we have to invest in people. And we have to do that without breaking the backs of working people with fines, fees, and property taxes. You can't make people feel bad because they have a payment plan. You can't stop someone with a payment plan for becoming mayor of the city of Chicago. Johnson, hmm. a former teacher and Chicago Teachers Union organizer, emerged victorious in a really close race against Paul Vallis. He confronts challenges such as challenges such as addressing migrant needs, securing business support, and tackling summer violence while also prioritizing mental health care, violence prevention, and police accountability. Johnson demonstrates the influential impact of taking firm positions on divisive issues. The ceremony concluded with a performance by gospel artist Karen Clark Shear. Yeah, Detroit homegirl there. Listen, um, very, very tight race, and uh, he was able to edge out Paul Vallis, who was also a favorite. I think the city was pretty divided as to which direction they wanted to go in, but however, this turned out to be somewhat of a surprising win. He's inheriting a lot of issues there in Chicago, number one being, you know, safety, and two, this influx of migrants who, who need shelter and who need resources, so there's a lot on his plate, but, you know, when you pull back and kind of look at the bigger picture, he reminds me so much of it. It's reminiscent of uh, Mayor, Mayor Harold uh, when he took office mm -hmm. and, and yet another African-American to uh, lead this city, especially when you take a look at uh, Chicago's very uh, storied um, uh, political history there and, and the folks who held office in that city. So um, he's got a lot of well wishes, uh, a lot of support, and uh, now it begins. Now it begins, and especially considering that the Democratic National Convention will be held mm -hmm. in Chicago. Mm -hmm. just next year and so you know during his his speech he echoed a commitment calling on the community to help reshape public opinion on the city and so they got a year yeah. uh, to see you know how much can they shift public opinion as all eyes will be on Chicago for the DNC National Convention for sure and New York City's uh, Democratic mayor Eric Adams faced protests from graduating law students at City University of New York the students turned their backs and voiced their discontent during Adams commencement address video footage circulated on social media capturing the Demonstration. Now, the protests followed the criticism of Adams' response to the death of Jordan Neely, a homeless man killed in a subway station. Adams received applause at certain points in his speech, however, expressing his ability to uh, represent the city's diverse population. The mayor's press secretary acknowledged the protesters' rights and praised the graduates' commitment to the field of law. They yeah. weren't too pleased.
pleased with him and when that story first broke I remember that they weren't too pleased with him for a number of reasons though and and it's important to note that these protesters mm -hmm. were protesting in part uh, the fact that uh, the mayor has proposed cuts in the budget uh, and according to the comptroller in New York, uh, that would be an estimated uh, cut that would leave 235 faculty and staff without jobs, mm -hmm. right? And so there you are at the commencement ceremony, sort of delivering this message to the graduates, you know, but I'm sure there are faculty members there that stand to be cut if the mayor's budget is adopted. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of them, a lot of that a protest and them turning their backs a lot of that also had to do with the incident uh, in in the subway they just feel like when that story uh, first broke you know a man was dead is dead who didn't deserve to die and I think the mayor's position was like ah. and that really threw a lot of people off and mm -hmm. you know it's it's nice to see that the mayor's uh, cabinet just acknowledged those law students and their vigilance and if that's how they felt that's how they felt and they felt some kind of way getting up turning their backs while while the mayor was speaking so but as I was reading that article like you I felt like you know there were a myriad of reasons why he might have been mm -hmm. protested at that commencement speech so there you go all right mr. mayor mm -hmm. well Massachusetts US attorney Rachel Rollins will resign following an ethics investigation by the Justice Department's inspector general Rollins attorney confirmed her decision and she will submit a resignation letter to President Joe Biden Rollins, who faced controversy during her tenure, had twice required Vice President Harris to cast a tie-breaking vote for her nomination. The Inspector General's investigation focused on potential ethics issues, including Rollins' appearance at a political fundraiser. Rollins' resignation is a rare occurrence for a U.S. attorney, as the Justice Department aims to restore normalcy under Attorney General Merrick Garland. Sue Ann Robinson, that is the attorney representing Shanquilla Robinson's family. She's voicing concerns about the handling of the case. In a recent interview, she highlights multiple red flags in the investigation into Shanquilla's tragic death in Mexico. Video footage showed her being brutally beaten by a fellow vacationer. Despite a public announcement of a decision, the FBI withholds case files, citing ongoing translation of documents. Shanquilla's family remains deeply disappointed but determined to seek justice on the 200th day since her passing, they plan to travel to Washington, D.C. to demand justice for her death. And, you know, Courtney, what is so strange about this story is that the FBI is saying, well, the investigation is still open, mm -hmm. you know, but they've already made a, a decision as to uh, not moving forward with any sort of charges. And so which one is it? Um, and so, you know, there are a number of red flags that still have yet to be answered. And this just is a really strange case. You know, like, you know, where is the FBI at, you know, in terms of making a determination? It just, it seems like they rushed to make a decision without getting all of the information that they needed to make that decision. And so it really makes you wonder what's really going on. Yeah, it's and how much heartbreak, when you, when you think about the family, how much heartbreak can you continue to experience, you know, as they continue to fight for justice? We'll be talking with activist Tamika Mallory a little bit later on, who's been working very closely with the, the village uh, who are fighting alongside uh, Shanquilla Robinson's family. So hopefully, you know, Tamika will have some insight as to what is really happening and now what the push is, especially after, you know, the FBI sort of kind of turned their backs on this case. So it'll be interesting to hear that. That's right. Well, coming up, the call to boycott in the name of black leadership. Yeah, we'll tell you all about the launch of a new campaign to hold sports companies accountable. You're watching Fox Soul's Black Report. We'll be right back, soulmates. Stay close. Welcome back to Fox Hills Black Report. Well, there's a global call to sports leagues around the world to boycott one company. Yeah, this comes after it was discovered that there's a major lack of diversity in leadership. We're talking about Panini America. Panini got its start back in 1954 and is still considered a leader in sports trading cards and other collectibles. Now, the organization, until Freedom, pinned an open letter to the company calling on them to do an immediate reform of its hiring 
process. And the leader of this movement is Tamika Mallory, who's also co-founder of the nonprofit Until Freedom. She joins us now to further break down this problematic culture of <clears throat> overlooked leadership. Welcome, Tamika. Thanks for being here on Fox Soul's Black Report. Thank you so much for having me. So um, one thing, you know, let's, let's start with this. Can you tell us why Black America should be concerned about the sports collectibles company? I think Black America should be concerned about the issue of inequity in all corporate spaces. Uh, Panini represents one of many companies that needs to do better with its diversity, inclusion, um, equity and inclusion practices. Uh, and so, you know, by us talking about Panini, it's not anything different from when we've had to have these conversations with Verizon, um, when we've had these conversations with many companies, American Airlines. Uh, and now here we are looking at a company that has a 75 percent of its business based upon contracts with African-American athletes and yet no senior leadership that represents the same community. It's problematic. And I think it's a no brainer for folks to understand why um, it's something that has to be called out and addressed. Indeed. To make it talk to us a little bit about the letters you wrote to the sports and entertainment collectibles uh, organization. So we, we wrote a letter to them hoping um, that they will realize that there is a need for immediate change. There's a need for them to bring in uh, some company that can help them to look at retention um, and also look at the matriculation within their company for black employees that work there. Why are they not rising to senior level leadership positions? Um, you know, what are their hiring practices? Where is their recruitment pool coming from? I mean, there are many questions that I think need to be answered immediately. And we sent the letter uh, hoping that they will be responsive. But, you know, anyone who knows the work that I do and the work of my organization Until Freedom and also our partner in this effort is Pastor Mike McBride, who leads the Black Church Pack. Um, and working together, we certainly won't stop at one letter. Uh, we will ensure that, you know, as the days continue, we increase this campaign and continue to engage players, um, some of the, the different leagues. Uh, we're going to send letters to the NFL uh, and all the leagues where their players are signing with Panini. Uh, and furthermore, we will make sure that everyday citizens are aware of what's happening and that their voices are heard as well. We see a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion headlines these days. You know, many companies and state leaders are reevaluating diversity and inclusion divisions. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends on which way you're leaning. I mean, you know, there are some states where we know if you think about a state like Florida, its governor is trying to get people to uh, review those policies and find ways to decrease the level, if, if not eliminate completely diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Um, but then there are other uh, states where people are really working towards trying to be intentional about their DEI efforts. Um, what I will say is that it's important for us to remember where the renewed commitment to uh, being more intentional in this space started. It was around the summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd, companies overwhelmingly had a, a, a choir uh, coming forward to say, hey, we've got to do better. We need to be more engaged. We need to use the power within our companies to help communities. Um, and certainly if you have 75% of your business being on the talent and the backs of African-American people, whether you made the commitment or not, we're going to help you see that there is an issue, that it's inequitable, and we need to raise the veil, not just on Panini, but many companies who have tried to stay in the background and not use their resources and the influence of their uh, their their superpower brand to support communities uh, that are aligned with and attached to their consumer base and their business structure. Indeed. Um, you know, while you're here, Tamika, we want to pick your brain on a couple of, of headlines that we've been talking about. One earlier in the show, we know you've been a part of, you know, activists and the civil rights attorneys who are pushing for answers and justice for Shanquilla Robbins' uh, family. Can you give us an update on what you understand, how you understand where the case actually stands at this point? 
Well, first of all, you know, um, thank you for bringing Shanquella Robinson up. Too often black women are ignored and left out of the headlines when there is a need for justice. And so on this Friday, May 19th, um, I will be with Shanquella's family, attorney Ben Crump, attorney Sue Ann Robinson and others uh, where we will be pushing for in Washington, D.C., pushing for the administration to um, ensure that there is accountability. Uh, we took a major blow just last week where we learned or two weeks ago where we learned that um, the Department of Justice and the FBI would not be um, formally um, uh, announcing charges for the individuals who were there in the home and particularly the one woman that we see attacking and abusing Shanquella. Um, they said that the cause of death was, was not determined by their autopsy and therefore they did not feel comfortable bringing charges because um, they did not know how she died, which we can refute that because um, the, in, the injuries that's mentioned in their report, although we're waiting for for the formal autopsy that should have been given to the family by now. But just looking at the report that they put out there, uh, the bruises, the internal bleeding, all the things that they mentioned in the report are directly in line with the attack that we saw happening in the house. But the bigger issue is that when Shanquella uh, was first killed, we, the, the United States government quickly said there was no foul pay, no harm, no foul. Uh, and so Shanquella's body sat for a while. There was no um, serious intentionality from the U.S. government to get there, to get her, to get her remains and perform the autopsy. So by the time the movement happened that forced the United States to pay attention to Shanquella, it was too late for them to, to have an autopsy that would truly determine what it needed to do so that they can bring charges. So no matter how you look at this situation, there is negligence on the government's perspective, from the government's perspective here in the United States and there in Mexico. And, um, you know, it is something that is so unfortunate for this family, but there are still other options. Mexico has said that they have submitted all documentation necessary to extradite at least the person who was seen attacking Shanquella. And we want to make sure that the United United States government does not stall on it, that they take it seriously and that they do what is necessary to get this process up and going. Well, we want to thank you, Tamika. Uh, uh, we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for all of your, your activism, for being mm -hmm. on the front lines, yeah. for fighting for the freedom of our people. Yeah, that good trouble. We appreciate you, Soror. Thank you. You know we're going to do it. So you, you'll continue to hear from us on a number of issues, but Shanquala Robinson is certainly top of mind. And Panini, um, we certainly won't stop until we get a response from them as well. Absolutely. We'll definitely have you back to talk uh, more about that and get some updates. Thank you, Tamika. Thank you. All right, another digital media company has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Vice Media says it agreed to sell its assets to several lenders in exchange for $225 million in credit. At one point, the company was worth nearly $6 billion. The company expects the sales to finalize in the next two to three months. And Nicola, I remember, you know, Vice Media sort of kind of taking over, yeah. you know, the, the digital platform wave if you will, they were so provocative mm -hmm. and almost a little tabloid-ish, but it did make you click on and it did make you listen, especially with some of the interviews that featured folks, some of our favorite folks from yesteryear or current um, in the culture who had a story to tell that we didn't know about. Very interesting to see how this company sort of kind of just fell off. Yeah, we're really going to miss uh, Vice News tonight mm -hmm. um, and a lot of their other programming because, um, you know, part of the challenge is, you know, there are a lot of stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And mainstream news, as we know here at Foxhole's Black Report, you know, doesn't always, you know, tell our stories, doesn't always center our voices in telling those stories, um, you know, misses those headlines, moves to other headlines really quickly. And so that was one of the great things about Vice News is that we got to go a little bit deeper on some stories that we weren't hearing in other places. And so, 
you know, the media landscape is shifting, you know, but uh, I hope uh, in some way, shape or form, somebody picks that up. Up next, doing our part to create brighter futures for those in foster care. That's right. When we return, we shine a light on the mistreatment of black children in the system as May is Foster Care Awareness Month, y'all. We'll be right back. You're watching Foxhole's Black Report. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. An alarming report, an alarming new report shows that black foster care students face more severe school discipline. The findings come out of West Virginia, where they say being black or enrolled in foster care is the biggest risk factor for being disciplined in the state. Now, West Virginia is also ranked as one of the states with the most children in foster care per capita. That's according to new data from the Department of Education. Now, the studies show that one in four of the 4,000 students in foster care were suspended due to disciplinary issues. Joining us now to shine more light on the issues that exist for black foster care uh, young people and in the system, uh, what we can all do to help and more is Tony Oliver, retired child welfare administrator and former president for the National Association of Black Social Workers. Welcome to Fox Souls Black Report. Thank you for having me. Indeed. Let's start with uh, social work. It, it is not for those who, who are not strong. Uh, what led you to help children struggling in the system? Well, I'm really not sure what led me to, to it. I just know that once I got into it, I couldn't leave. Hmm. Um, I focused my master's uh, studies on the child welfare system because I wanted to use one uh, field of study to apply to all of the classes. And once I got out, it actually during that time, I began to notice that there was something that was happening very differently for African-American families and children in the foster care system. And when I got out, I joined an agency that was looking to find black foster, uh, black adoptive families for black children who were in foster care. And I was excited to do that because I didn't have a sense that black people didn't adopt, but the field said black people didn't adopt and, and the field said that black children were hard to place. Neither one of those did I subscribe to. And, and just for our own education, how long on average is a black kid in the system and what are the odds of them finding a forever home? Okay, I wish I had the statistics to give you an average of how long uh, black children are in foster care, but what I can tell you is that all of the data that look, that compares black children to their white counterparts shows that number one, black children come into the, into the system uh, more quickly. They come in more likely for uh, neglect rather than abuse. Once they get in, they stay longer, oftentimes never leaving. While they're in, they have multiple placements, uh, as many as 10 or more. Uh, and when they leave, they have not been connected to a permanent family. And so the percentages of them becoming a part of the homeless population is also increased. And we haven't even talked about what their experience is while they're in foster care, being separated from their families, being separated from their children, and the fact that we really don't look at the incidence of abuse and neglect while in foster care. Yeah, could you share with us some of the misconceptions um, when it comes to black foster children and the system? Well, you know, one of the things that was always uh, uncomfortable for me is the fact that we call it the child welfare system and children are not commodities outside of a connection to a family. And so one of the misconceptions is that black children are coming into foster care because their families are not caring for them effectively. Black children are coming into foster care because poor families are over scrutinized by, in schools, in the hospitals, uh, by law enforcement. Um, it's typically, you could look at zip codes, poor communities are the ones where children are coming in. The conditions that those children are living in and their families are such that you could say that the society has neglected them, not that their families have neglected the children. And if we were to look at a family welfare system, what we would be doing is looking at building and supporting supports and resources that would enable families to be able to care for their children. Case in point, when during the pandemic, um, there were the, the numbers of children who came into foster care 
decreased significantly because there was no scrutiny on their family. And at the same time, child, child abuse and neglect did not increase. Um, also, the, the, the child welfare grants that were given by the federal government increased family functioning significantly. So the kinds of supports that families need to be able to take care of themselves are not provided by the foster care system. For, for those who are watching who can't adopt or they, they can't foster for a whole variety of reasons, what can we all do to help? That's a very good question. And I think that there are a number of things that we have established in the black community over time about self-help. And we've looked at uh, the Divine Nine, we've looked at our churches, we've looked at other community groups, and we have found a way to take care of each other. Now, I'm not saying that we would do that absent other types of supports, but there are so many things that we can do um, to be able to provide resources for children, whether it's recreational, whether it's tutoring, uh, whether it's through um, the, like I said, the Divine Nine or other community groups. There's so many services and, and systems in communities that are there to help other people if they were supported to be able to meet the needs of children who would otherwise come into foster care. Yeah, Miss Oliver. But I do believe that there are a number of African-American families uh, singles or whatever mm -hmm. who are interested in being supports to families and many of them experience the same kinds of difficulties when they uh, approach uh, agencies to become um, support families for children in foster care. Yeah. So for those who, you know, may be open, whether it's their, you know, hearts, minds, home to uh, fostering or maybe just following along, getting some more information on social media, how can we learn more and get involved? Any websites or, or numbers or organizations you suggest we get in touch with? Well, there are two things. One is, I would say, if you're impacted by the foster care system and you're looking for what your rights are, then you need to be connected to, um, you could call them self-help groups. There's one that comes to mind immediately, JMAC for Families, it's very active uh, nationally and located in, in New York City. Um, I would also look to community groups that provide services to families to get a sense of the agencies or programs that are operating to help children in a variety of ways. And I say that because there have been too many instances where I have received information from families who've said they've gone to the, the traditional agencies to foster and adopt and that the criteria that they use to screen out families has not enabled them to become a foster or adoptive parent. So there are two things here. One is we do have a foster care system. We do need more black and brown people um, and Native American to be resources for the children who are impacted by, by the system. And at the same time, we need more support of the organizations that are working to improve community resources to help families so that children do not come in foster care in the first place. Our thanks to Tony Oliver, retired child welfare administrator and former president of the National Association of Black Social Workers. We love social workers and we love you. You are an honorary soulmate. Please come on back again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, our fave Shaq is continuing to pour into the culture as his foundation has teamed up with one of uh, longtime endorsements to open a new basketball facility. The former Lakers player called on his friends over at uh, Icy Hot to the uh, Comeback Q Court sports facility, the largest of its kind in the Atlanta area. Icy Hot and Shaq now have a 20-year history, and this partnership shows there's no plans to end that relationship anytime soon. Over the past two decades, the pair has partnered up to refurbish courts in Vegas, Newark, and Miami, but says it is time now to go bigger. And who hasn't seen the Shaq Icy Hot commercial with my hair hurt? I get icy. <laughs> I get That's icy actually hot. a good Shaq impression. I love Shaq. He's still ahead. <laughs> Barack is owning up to his part of a 10-year rough patch. What? We'll tell you what he says. Uh, ended up saving his marriage to Michelle. When we return, you're watching Fox Soul's Black Report.
Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, former NFL player R.K. Russell made history as the first active NFL player to publicly identify as bisexual. And now he's sharing his story in a new memoir, The Yards Between Us. He is joining us to discuss the new book and share, uh, share with us his goals in making sports more inclusive. R.K., welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Indeed. All right. So, you know, you you kind of championed and did something that many uh, folks in the league are a little afraid to do, which is to just simply be yourself. Now, what inspired you to to go ahead and live your truth? Honestly, it was for me about survival. It was about being happy in my own skin, happy in my own life. And the realization that it was unfair or wrong or unjust for me to feel I couldn't be myself and also play the game that I love. Uh, and I didn't want anyone else to come at that roadblock and feel as though they needed to make a decision. I didn't want to make a decision, so I thought moving forward, I need to embrace my truth and myself. Um, and then see see where the chip falls they may. I love football. I never wanted to stop playing football. Um, but at the same time, life had a different calling for me. And that is to write this book, uh, The Yards Between Us, and to also help other athletes and people coming up in this world um, realize the same thing, realize that you should not choose, have to choose between your truth and the things that you love to do. Wow. RK, you share in the book, at one point you were juggling between your, your secret personal life and your football life. Can you talk to us a little bit about how difficult that was? And tell us the three words that your mother said when you opened up to her about your truth. Yeah, to juggle private and personal, you know, there's a fine line. It's okay to keep things private to yourself and to keep family matters, you know, closer to the vest. Um, but you need to talk to someone. And that my personal life, that football persona and that football culture and that male culture became toxic at times, you know, to tell men that they shouldn't cry and they should be tough or that emotions were weakness um, were all things that bled over in into my life and into who I was in, to in very toxic ways. Um, so, so having the private life shrouded in kind of secret and shame and having the public persona be so big, I was in constant conflict um, with myself, which blocked me from happiness, love, from enjoying the moments of being a Dallas uh, cowboy and a Tampa Bay Buccaneer and, and having success in a game that I loved. Uh, so for me, the two to be so at odds and so in conflict uh, and not be in harmony was, was probably the biggest struggle throughout that I detailed throughout the book and throughout my life. Um, and in terms of writing the memoir <laughs> and in terms of hopefully being that inclusion uh, for my four other athletes. Uh, I hope that they just can see themselves to do doing everything that they want to do and being the person they want to be. Um, when I came out to my mom to address your other question, the three words that she said to me were, what about football? And it was devastating for me to hear, but looking back at it now and even reading it and writing it, it was really a mirror of the society. And, and, uh, and really a temperature check of the climate that we're in today that for an athlete to come out as bisexual or as gay or as anything other than straight instantly means in, in our society that they're going to retire or that they're no longer wanting to pursue their sport, especially male athletes. Um, so, you know, it was devastating to hear from my mother, but it was also so telling of a society that raised both of us and that we were both in. Uh, and change that. How can we change that temperature and that climate of, of the current day society and sport? Absolutely. So they gave me a question to ask, but I have to ask, how did you and your mom work through that? I mean, you, we hear that response, but, you know, you were still, you know, coming out in your truth. So how did you work through that? I got to know. Yeah, my, my mother and I are so close. Like, yeah. we've been best friends up to that point. We are best friends now. Mm -hmm. And it is, a, it's, you know, it takes two. I definitely have to give my mother grace in that moment because, like I said, it was a reflection of, of, of society's teachings to all of us. But also, it had taken me at that point, I think, 27 years to become comfortable with who I am and to accept it and to put it into sentence and to word and to share. And in that conversation, she had all of five minutes um, to do all of that kind of heavy lifting and, real, and realizing. I will say that my mom came back shortly after we had the moment um, with the human rights campaign at the National Gala when I was being honored, where she came and she apologized to me. Mm -hmm. She told me that as a mother, she was afraid for me, having the additional target in my back. Because like I said, telling of society that being an out LGBTQ plus black person initially puts another target on your back, um, that she was afraid for me 
and she was just as a mother was 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 scared for her son uh, and she apologized she's in my life very much now today we talk about everything she's with my partner Corey uh, now here with with me now and on this tour um, and she she is my best friend still to this day so yeah wow. I think that's that's, that's important to know that that's was important to, to hear the full circle of that story I think you're right I think yeah. you're right and I think you're, you're gonna set a lot of people free mm -hmm. you're gonna give a lot of people some some inspiration that we so desperately need. Uh, before we let you go, I gotta ask you, you know, May is also Mental Health Awareness Month. How important is it for those resources to make it into the locker rooms? And, and have you seen improvement with how the league handles mental health? Mental health is so important. It's important in, in our society for everyone. It's important specifically for men because I think we, my generation and even the generation before, um, have not encouraged men to talk about their feelings, to talk about their mental health, to open up and be um, and to seek treatment in a form that feels right to them and feels good to them in their life. There's been shame around it, just the way there's been shame around so many things for all people and specifically for men. Uh, in the NFL locker room, I think it's extra important because at a young age, you're entering into such a heightened profession, such a public profession where everyone has an opinion about you and they can tell you about it within 140 characters in five seconds on Twitter uh, <laughs> or, or in your comments on Instagram. So I think it's important to make sure that you're checking in with yourself, that you're prioritizing yourself outside of a sport, that you're checking in on R.K. Russell, the human, and not just R.K. Russell, the football player. Uh, and I think that in turn will improve your game. You know, if you do want to still focus focus on those things through a sports lens, it's important to take care of yourself. You can't go out on the football field, you know, traumatized, stressed, um, depressed, anxiety, you know, without dealing with all those things. First, you're not going to help a team win. You're not going to help yourself in the long run. And I think the NFL seeing that more specifically, I think players are seeing that and taking onus on their own mental health and on their own um, journey and wholeness and well-being. Indeed, RK, uh, RK Russell, uh, I'm gonna just put it out there, best-selling best -selling author, we'll speak it into existence, new uh, book called The Yards Between Us. It's available everywhere books are sold. We wanna thank you so much for sharing your story and taking some time out. You're an official soulmate. We, right. we, we're baptizing you today, and we definitely gotta have you back and really continue uh, this conversation. We appreciate you so much. Continue to make us proud, brother. That's right. Of course. Thank you for having me. I will, I'll be back anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. Barack Obama is owning up, admitting that during a recent interview that uh, there was a 10 year period early in his marriage that Michelle just could not stand him. I don't know about your spouse, Michelle. When when our girls were growing up, that was priority number one, two, Three and four. Of course. What she's told me is, you know, looking back, you did okay as a dad. Yeah. And uh, and and if I pass that test, then then uh, she'll forgive me most of my other my other uh, foibles. The former first lady <laughs> made wow. the comments on a panel last year. Michelle says the animosity hit its highest point during their daughter's early years as Barack was beginning his political career. The 61-year-old politician says he's been able to get back into her good graces, mm. and it helps to be out of the White House. Saying that having more time to spend with Michelle and their kids has also been a factor. The couple has been married for 30 years. I thought the forever first lady said she ain't like him for 20 years. No. Was it, it, was, it, was, it was 10 years. Oh, I it thought I heard 20 years. You know, listen, first of all, I'm loving the salt as as he eases his way on out of the out more, of the salt more, and pepper. More salt than yeah, pepper. Yeah, I feel like it's wisdom, you know, and, and it's like, you know, it's like an arriving of where you are in your life, this this golden moment, if you will. But I love it. And I've read a lot of what um, Michelle Obama has had to say as a newlywed coming out of the single life for so very long. You know, you, you make this commitment and your, your partner doesn't go away. It's not like a boyfriend. You don't go back to your own house or go away. They're right there. And it's a lot of hard work. You nest, you nest together. Yes. And this is the deal. I really love that they're being so honest and transparent yeah. about their relationship mm -hmm. because a lot of people would say, you know, they got Barack and Michelle goals when it comes yeah. to relationship. Well, it was nice to see that, you know, First Lady Michelle Obama said, you know, we got Barack and Michelle problems. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They look a lot like the same challenges that a lot of people face in their marriages where, you know, there are peaks and valleys That's in right. every relationship. You know. 
know my relationship's no different. Your relationship and is no different. How many years in are you? Thir we've been together for 13, married for eight. And y'all still like each other. And we still like each other and love yeah, each other. Yeah, we've been together maybe, maybe. And make each other laugh. Maybe two, uh, only married for about eight or nine months. Best friends, so like and, and definitely love. But what you don't see, everybody puts out these highlights on social media, but you don't see the work. You, you don't see or you don't hear what Michelle and Barack are talking about. And it is the real deal. Yeah. Co-mingling your lives, co-mingling two different visions, co-mingling two different, you know, backgrounds. I'm a heathen from Detroit, you know, he's a he's a southern fried, you know, Alabama boy. That is that's different. Well, you know, Montre's from Norfolk, Virginia. He's from the <laughs> South. I'm from California, yeah. right? And, and there we have about a five year age difference. And so wow. you know, these are these are challenges that exist in any relationship. But mm -hmm. you know, I encourage people to check out the book The Five Love Languages. Oh. Because I think a lot yeah. a lot of the challenges that people experience in relationship is because you are loving on a different frequency you than your partner, that's right? A, that's good advice. I know mine. It's it. it I know mine. I and know, it helps. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it really too. does. I know mine and he knows mine and I know his. There we go. All right. More evidence that winning a lot of regular season games in the NBA doesn't mean squat. If you don't win playoff games, Doc Rivers led the Philadelphia 76ers to their second straight 50 win season. But on Tuesday, he was fired. The 76ers fell to the uh, Celtics in seven games in their second round playoff series. It's the third straight year that Rivers team has been eliminated in the second round. Rivers joins uh, a coach by the name of Mike in Milwaukee and Monty Williams in Phoenix as coaches who were fired after their teams were knocked out of the playoffs this year. You know, if you don't win, it's a problem. So. It's a, it's a problem, but you know, is it fair? Is it fair? I mean, there aren't a lot of black coaches in the league mm -hmm. compared to white coaches, mm -hmm. right? And so I get that at the end of the job, you're hired to win, you know, but there are lots of people that say, well, the coach can't go out there and throw the ball in the net. You know, you know all, you're limited in just being able to coach. It's the team that actually has to sort of take things, you know, uh, to the hoop. And so, you know, uh, Doc Rivers has a lot of respect from a lot of people. I'm sure he's going to be okay, but it really raises that question, a very le legitimate question. Did he have enough time, you know, to succeed in executing against what he was charged with doing? I disagree. Um, you know, we could play the race card if we'd like. I think that is legitimate in either some or most cases. However, when it comes to Doc, the 76ers, this is his third year not getting past this particular level of the playoffs. At some point, there's a level of expectation that you are going to have to, you know, live up to that is expected from you. And when when you put fail on top of fail on top of fail, at some point, something gives. I'm sure he was clear of the expectations at the beginning of the year. Contractually, he knows what's up. So I'm not saying that your point isn't legit. I'm just saying that I think for this case, it's more about him not getting the W versus him being a black coach and, and not getting a fair chance. And, and he has some superstars on. He has the, he had the, the league's MVP on his squad. He has some superstars that gave him the weapons. And at the end of the day, you're the coach of and the boss of that team. And the bottom line rests with you. I think that may very well be the case, but I think it still raises the question because there are, again, in terms of representation, there are so few black coaches in the league. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a legitimate question to be raised, like, you know, is he being treated the same as other coaches? And so, look, you know, if the answer is yeah, yes, two other coaches then, got then the answer is yes. Because they ain't won but, but if the answer is no, then we got a problem. And so I think it, it's, it's worthy of, you know, a little bit of investigation. We agree to disagree. <laughs> Up next, it's culinary black excellence, and we can't wait to share it with you. We're going to introduce you to the Nigerian chef who is setting world records. You're watching Fox Soul's Black Report. Was she cooking jollof rice? Yeah, and then some. <laughs> Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, Hilda Bassi, a 27-year-old chef from Lagos, Nigeria, has spent over 100 hours cooking. Wow. All in an attempt to break a Guinness World Record for the longest ever cooking session by an individual. So the cookathon was broadcast uh, across several streaming services as loved ones, celebrities, politicians, and thousands of supporters cheered Bassi on as she prepared local and intercontinental Nigerian recipes. Now the goal was to inspire young girls and on the possibility 
of achieving their dreams, the break barriers, and leave lasting, leave a lasting impact. That's right. The Guinness Book of World Records is currently aware of Bossy and will review the evidence that she cooked for over a hundred hours before officially confirming it, potentially surpassing an Indian chef who set the record of 87 hours and 45 minutes in 2019. All righty. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You were no. going to say something? No. Mm -mm. I was going to read that, but it's your read. Oh, go okay. right ahead. Okay. Well, <laughs> here we go. 74-year-old Chester Stevens graduated from Southern University in 1973, but never participated in his commencement ceremony. It's my turn now, right? Go ahead. All right. So this is really serious, though. Really interesting. It was a punishment for his participation in a student organization called Students United. Now, the group was dedicated to fighting civil injustices that took place on campus. During his time at SU, Stevens found out it was governed by 13 overseers who were white, only uh, one having a college education. None had even ever been on the campus, and these were the folks who were, who were determining their fate. Uh, he also recalled that two students were shot and killed when a group of law enforcement officers raided a peaceful demonstration. This event, of course, had life-changing effects on other students who also survived that attack. Steven's degree in electrical engineering was mailed to mm. him, so for him, the moment he walks across the stage 50 years later to celebrate his degree will feel surreal. Yeah, and, and reading a little bit more into this story, the only sad note is that he just lost his mother uh, mm. late last year, and he's the firstborn. And so for her not to physically be here to see him finally walk across the straight, uh, stage is a little heartbreaking. But we all know that, that uh, it's not to be present. You, you know the rest. So mm -hmm. she'll definitely be here with, with them spiritually. But that's a, that's a very interesting layered story. And I'd be interested to go a little deep with that particular protest and how that happened and who was governing that school back in the early 70s. That was deep. You know, and it's just another example of how and why it's important for us to know our history. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some folks that would have us think that there's no need for affirmative action mm -hmm. or that, you know, black folks have always been created, created equal and treated equally mm -hmm. here in the United States. That's not the case. In fact, because that wasn't the case, that's what kept him from you know, getting his degree and walking fi over 50 years ago. Yeah. All right. For the full rundown on today's stories and more, you can access Fox Show's video on demand on any of our partners. You can even access past shows and other Black-centered content. Don't forget to download the Foxo app. It's free. Well, thank you for watching. I'm the Cordelai Corte. I'm Courtney Hicks. <laughs> Until next time, soulmates, on behalf of all of us here at Fox Souls Whack Report, stay lifted. Sound like you didn't want to go. We'll be back tomorrow. Th will we be back? We'll be back tomorrow. Okay, all right, all right. We'll <laughs> stay see you tomorrow. <laughs> we'll be back. Done already? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> more, let's give them more. <laughs> okay.